We typically record introductions after we have the conversation, but I wanted to share this thought that I've had about the state of our country. Because unless you've been living under a rock, which if you're listening to the podcast, you haven't been. I mean, you know there has been a lot of tension in the United States. Duh. Like, white dominance continues to be asserted. And through it all, there's been a question about why more white people, women in particular, are not speaking up and speaking out against racism, misogyny, and more. And I think, you know, people explain it to themselves more commonly through things like white women are told not to speak about politics, or they would prefer to follow their husband's lead, or maybe like people think they are actually enjoying being superior. And on the flip side, maybe they really do secretly care about inequality and hatred, but they don't know where to start. And as I was feeling all the feels, I was starting to wonder if it's not because, or certainly not only because of those things, but because of what we're about to discuss today, anger. If the fuming, furious, seething feeling I'd had for like a week after the Capitol was stormed on January 6, 2021, that was any indication feeling anger sucks and is bad for my body. I hate it. When I'm raging, it's not good. And if, you know, as you point out, I don't think we as women have been taught how to handle that feeling. So I'm wondering if in, instead of all of those reasons, maybe women are just going out of our way to avoid this feeling. Maybe that's why we're just disengaging because it's way easier than to live with this simmering rage about the state of our world. And I second that feeling because it was kind of like a low grade fever that I couldn't get rid of. You know, there was no breath work, no calm thoughts. And Sarah's laughing because she's like, when have you ever done breath work? But, you know, desperate times, right? No stress suppressed tea, which is actually a real thing in my house, was working. But, but again, what was the alternative? It was really compartmentalizing, right? Shoving those feelings down and away and pasting a smile on my face and going on with my day and taking care of others, all the while not acknowledging how I felt or why I felt the way I did. And this is why we're thrilled to be having this conversation. If I will ask you in a moment to introduce yourself, but we are talking with the author of Rage Becomes You to talk about how we've been conditioned, what our biology indicates as women and what the fuck to do when you feel like steam is coming out of your ears instead. So to our listeners, welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. We are your hosts, Sarah and Sasha. And with that, I turn the mic over to you. Please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Soraya Shamali, and I am the author of Rage Becomes Her and have written about issues related to gender, women's equality, intersectional feminism, as they pertain to really anything, media, politics, religion. And I wrote the book, honestly, in the wake of the 2016 election, because it was so clear to me what a central and pivotal role anger and some people's ability to leverage anger and other people's inability to leverage the same anger played and continues to play. So I'm delighted to be here today to talk to you about these issues. And we're totally fangirling, by the way, on our podcast book club, we're reading your book. Yes, we are. For the book club. Like we were just like, oh my God, we get to talk to her. So thank you for taking the time to be here with us. One of the things I wanted to dive into is in, so my background is as a life coach and I know what it takes to do the self-work. But one of the things I took away from your book was that being indignant, it requires this sort of secure sense of your own worth and an equally strong sense that like, there's some standard, some normal value that has been violated. So from what I took from that was that women basically have to feel good about themselves and feel that like they have something to offer if they're gonna be able to use that anger. And on the flip side, 
you found that this idea of objectifying yourself, just seeing you as an object, like it reduces your own awareness of anger and the ability to respond with anger. Cause we think, you know, we're just an object. We're just parts of ourselves. You wrote this quote, we need to give up the cultural commitment to the division of body and mind. And so to me as a life coach, like I said, it feels like there's a lot of self-development work that's required to combat this socialization that we experience to not express anger, to not feel worthy of feeling indignant. And I agree, but we're in a busy society. Can we discuss this idea of like, are women doing that work? Do we need to do that work? How do we do that? You know, I think it operates on so many levels, right? I should mention too, because it's relevant to what I'm about to say, I am the executive director of an organization called the Representation Project. And the Representation Project, our mission is really to challenge stereotypes, particularly gender stereotypes and the role that they play in all types of oppression. And the reason that's important is because so many of the stereotypes we hold about emotions, about the mind, about the body, about being female, feminine, male, masculine, those stereotypes are shortcuts for us, right? They make life much more efficient for us. But that doesn't mean that they're not harmful and denigrating and even dangerous. So when we think about anger, starting from very, very early in life, very young children, we learn to associate anger with masculinity masculine power, masculine leadership, masculine identity. And we learn to disassociate the emotion from being female or feminine. And that's dangerous because in fact, anger is a signal emotion that all human beings have that warns us of impending threat, threats against our dignity, our safety, our well-being. So the question that I started off with is, why do we as, as cultures globally separate this very important emotion from a sense of femininity. And it comes down to a lot of this binary thinking that is implicated in mind, body, public, private, male, female, right? Because the corollary to anger for men and boys is sadness for girls and women. We are okay if girls and women are sad because in fact, we can associate sadness with other stereotypes, helplessness, meekness, vulnerability, passivity, you know, we, that's all wrapped up in feminine identity, but it doesn't make demands and it doesn't. Sadness has lots of virtues. People who are sad are more empathetic. It's not a demand that we hold the people around us accountable for caring for us, right? And so anger is rich with all of these stereotypes. And unfortunately, part of not being angry and part of being a girl and part of being feminine is learning that what you need, which is what anger is, anger is an expression of need. I see there's a problem. I need something to change. That what you need has to take second place to everybody else so that you are first and foremost, not a subject to yourself, but in the service of others. We all are cultivated as young girls to put the needs of others ahead of us. And part of that is self-objectifying. We learn at a very early age, study after study after study shows, to see ourselves through the eyes of others. So in early childhood, girls are asked to use their nice voices far more frequently than boys. They're asked to say please. They're asked to stop interrupting. They're asked not to be disruptive. They are definitely, definitely disciplined for being angry, but not just being angry, for even just being assertive right, for just being assertive or aggressive. And that effect of punishing is compounded for black girls in America, right? So a young black girl who's assertive 
or aggressive is automatically cast as angry and then much more likely to be harshly disciplined starting in kindergarten, right? Much more likely to be disciplined, expelled, punished in school, put through a prison pipeline. So that's where you see the confluence of race and gender. And that's always the case. The flip side of that is the anger to entitlement that white men have as citizens, right? When boys and men are angry, it confirms their masculinity. But when girls and women are angry, it defies our femininity. And that's where the punishing aspect of things come in. Oh, and I'm processing this through the lens of being a mom of two daughters and me, Sasha has two sons. So I'm really curious as this conversation evolves for us to know that like I'm internalizing and asking questions with this particular lens and right. checking some boxes in my head about, oh, this is what I'll do differently. And this is what I'll learn. I will say, I mean, people often focus on this idea of, of angry women. I sometimes joke and I say, you know, I could have written this entire book with virtually the same studies, but have it be about sad men. Because the same way we penalize girls and women for being angry or assertive or claiming what we think of as male entitlements and prerogatives and behaviors, we really punish boys and men for showing frailty, weakness, fear, empathy, sadness. Those emotions for so many boys are seen as off limits. They're seen as degradations. And that comes back to intersectional misogyny, right? Because to deny boys and men their full humanity ultimately in that way is because we're denigrating the feminine parts of them, of their humanity, and the parts that we associate with female weakness and submission. So anger is really in the middle of all of that. You know, it's why we're so uncomfortable when we get angry. We're uncomfortable when we get angry because it butts right into all the core attributes and functions that we're supposed to serve. When we get angry, we're expressing our own subjectivity and need, and we're prioritizing it over the needs of the people around us. And that's deeply conflicting and anxiety provoking. And I wonder if that plays into a setting, because when you said that about the crying, it reminds me when I was at Goldman, I was in finance, and I remember being told something had happened. I really can't remember the scenario, except that I was in a conference room crying. And they were like, you can't cry here. And so because it's traditionally a more masculine space, even though I'm a woman expressing my sadness through tears, it was not permitted. Yep. Whereas in the house, and I've had moments where my husband's like, why are you crying? You know, like it is, it still triggers when you express any kind of emotion that's unpleasant or makes people feel uncomfortable, it becomes your fault. Yeah. And honestly, I think a lot of women, and this has happened to me, I get very angry and I start to cry. And part of that is the conflict, the feeling that I'm not supposed to show anger. I'm not supposed to make demands on people. But crying out of frustration also signals I'm angry, but I know that I'm female and feminine. I can express this emotion that's so hard for me to express while also signaling that I know that, right? Like crying is acceptable for women in a way it's not for men. And so by demonstrating a prototypically feminine behavior, while feeling this transgressive masculine emotion, I am able to maybe come to terms with expressing it in some way. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think back to I'm an attorney and thinking about you know trials and the pressure and everyone's dealing with these emotions, but the way that they came out for men a lot of times was the yelling and the anger. And for the women, it was through the tears. But like Sarah's experience, it was still frowned upon. You weren't supposed to be crying, right? This was like war, right? You were in trial and you were going to compartmentalize. And that was a very masculine experience. So that's so interesting to think about. 
this now. Yeah, and I see that in leadership, right? We know that when men who are in management and leadership and lawyers, when male lawyers or male CEOs show anger, because it confirms these stereotypes, their teams or jurors will be won over. They'll be more compelled to agree because that expression of anger reinforces the way they think this person should be expressing their power or their knowledge. But for a woman to do the same thing as a CEO or as a lawyer hurts her because, in fact, it makes people deeply uncomfortable to think, wait, she's not behaving in the the shortcut that I have. Like, she's not dressed the way she should be dressed. She's not tall enough. She's not a man. She's not white enough, whatever the combination is. And so that actually makes people more hostile. They dislike the strong woman who's decisive in the boardroom and they find the lawyer who is aggressive and dominant, unappealing and untrustworthy, you know, and it has a moral cadence to it. It's definitely a moral judgment about a person when they cross those emotional lines. I mean, it feels a little like damned if you do, damned if you don't, because how can women then lead? If they're not allowed to cry and they're not allowed to express anger, how does one woman express frustrations that some code has been violated or that they're worth it, you know, in a successful way? I mean, I guess maybe we need to put a pin on that and be like, how do we express anger healthily? And we'll- But I think that's important because in fact, I think it requires a, a change in our stereotypes. And some people think stereotypes can't be changed, but that's proven to be untrue. We know, I mean, you can think I'm 54 and I know that the stereotypes of my youth have changed over time, you know, terrible sort of, I mean, I've lived in different countries. I didn't grow up in this country, but, you know, racial and ethnic slurs that people freely bandied about and used to govern their interactions became unacceptable at some point. They became very evidently misleading and full of lies and people stopped. And so you can actually challenge these stereotypes and it takes hard work on the ground. And I would argue that and I say this actually in my TED talk, women underestimate the power they have in their own sphere of the world. We're supposed to be in charge of emotions and of the private sphere and of education, you know, and we should really think about what that means. It doesn't mean that's your place and you should stay in it to me, but it definitely means you can be incredibly effective when you come together with other like-minded parents to say, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to stand there while they tell the sexist jokes and the pink shaming humor and just stand here and listen to it and smile. You know, I'm just not going to do that. I love that. I mean, so let's talk about some practical things too, because one of the things I was shocked by was that you said people who act aggressively, not just like have higher testosterone after, but also felt like more aggressive for a prolonged period of time afterwards because of that shift. And I think the stat was that anger affects women's bodies even more than it does men. Men have like a three to 4% increase in testosterone. Women have a 10% increase in testosterone after. Isn't that fascinating? It explains so much, right? Because, you know, with smaller kids, they drive you crazy periodically just as they do. And when I have that rage, Mm -hmm. I couldn't recover as quickly as it looked like my husband could. Like he could just sort of, it felt like maybe I just wasn't present or like, I didn't know why I was feeling, I needed to cool down time to really get back to myself, right? Yeah, I mean, I want to go back just one step and explain this because it took me a while to really understand this and believe it properly, which is why I included so much research. 
I think a lot of people default to boys and men are angrier, which is different from being aggressive, right? They're not angrier, by the way. They simply aren't angrier people by default, but they're angrier because of testosterone. And in fact, it's sort of the other way around because the more you behave angry, the more testosterone is produced in your body. That's what you were referring to, right? So there's some fascinating studies that really show that if you ask, for example, actors and actresses to perform in a demonstrably aggressive, domineering, even cruel way, that's the number you're talking about. Their testosterone levels, women's, skyrocket, you know? And it may be that the difference between men's levels and women's levels is just that men's levels are already higher, so they level up, right? They're sort of, they reach the same level, but women have to have that larger increase. But it does beg the question of how we socialize boys and girls to use their bodies, right? So in playgrounds and rough and tumble play, if boys are engaged and if parents, which they are, are much freer to allow boys to take risks and hurt themselves, they are actively cultivating higher production of testosterone in those children. Whereas by keeping girls close and keeping them quote unquote safe and limiting their physical and expansive behaviors, they are also regulating their testosterone levels and suppressing them through behavior, which is a completely upside down way of thinking about it to the one we tend to. It's like the self-perpetuating cycle almost. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, I'm just going through examples of my own kids in my head. And, you know, I grew up very sort of traditionally, like culturally, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, it taught to suppress anger and suppress all that. Yeah. And then I remember, you know, the first time I actually saw the color red, like I didn't think, I thought that was just like a metaphor and people said that. Well, I think especially as a mother, I mean, I split the chapter, I had a chapter on care that included motherhood and it became so clear in writing that I had to have a whole chapter about mothering. And for women who will never be mothers, don't want to be mothers too, because they're subject to the expectation of having maternal attributes, for example, at work, right? Of treating others with care and deference particularly when they're in the quote-unquote fertile years, right? Like there's a period of time in which we're just expected to provide that service in society. Oh, and so many thoughts. I'm so curious about your thoughts on like that role. But while we're on this topic of behavior and reinforcing loops, I'm curious what you're, we talked about swearing. I let one go before, but like I do have a trucker mouth. And even when I worked in finance, I was told it was unladylike. And they created a little swear jar for me to put change in every time, decondition me. Oh. Oh my God, how did you deal with that? It was in Japan. There was a lot of different expectations. So they were great. I mean, it was a great company there. And like, I really enjoyed my colleagues. But that said, you know, words like the stronger the curse word, the higher your pain tolerance, you know. And yet if we show those angry moments, show the swear, we're less likely to get help. I mean, what is your take on swear words and aggressive words? Because does that self-prepare? Like what happens there? Well, I think that's more, that's again, goes back to these socialization and childhood and stereotypes. So swear words are like jokes and obscene humor and uh, belching or being disruptive or making bodily sounds. So we know that, for example, girls are just held to much higher norms of politeness and gentility. And part of that is not cursing, 
or making the sounds bodily sounds or interrupting people. And so we see over and over again in classroom studies that girls tend to be more excessively penalized for engaging in any of that behavior. And boys are often tolerated. And in fact, we have a very clear difference in understanding children's self-regulation, particularly in the United States. So one of the studies I cited was of preschool preparedness in many different countries, but four of which were in Southeast Asia and then the United States. And what it showed was that in the U.S. in particular, people expect boys not to be able to control themselves or to self-regulate. And that then becomes part of a problem in early childhood school readiness because girls are ready. Girls can sit still. They're more inclined to focus. They do what they're told but we give boys a lot more leeway. In other countries, that's not as true. And what that correlates to is earlier preschool preparedness. And that was the point of the study. Like, why is it that in some societies and cultures, boys, there is no self-regulation apparent. There's no gap, right? And so I think that's related. So we tend to have linguistic preferences that cultivate, I would say, submission in girls and dominance in boys, linguistic dominance in boys. Like that's where you end up with, you know, mansplaining. You know, this is so interesting. And I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I was having a conversation with my older son yesterday about something at their school called Second Step, which is how it's part of their social emotional learning. And I had gotten upset at him about something. And then he had gotten super angry about something else. And so we were talking about anger and he was like, well, in second step, they teach us, you know, sort of how to handle anger and how to express anger. And he's like, but you seem really good at controlling your anger, (laughs) which I don't think I am. But he was like, how did you learn how to do that? And that question sort of took me aback because I was like, I don't know, all of my life. And it was so interesting to hear him, you know, in like, upper elementary having these discussions now, which gives me some hope for the future that we can move away from these stereotypes, right? But then thinking back to my own experience and how that has was so different. Well, and it gives me hope that the schools are teaching it, but you look at the men in, at least the men that we've seen in power and the role models that they're providing, like ultimately some of these in-home conversations are shaped by these very parents that we're talking about. So like, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to have hope, but I think it's interesting to be more and more aware of these patterns and really implement them in that home, which, as you said, a lot of women, not saying that's the only place for women, but those private spheres in the education is something that we as women can control. So the more we realize these things and the more we say, no, guys, you have to be held to these standards too, in those spheres, they can be trained up out of it. And I think this is the really important connection. We tend particularly, I think this is just true in terms of neoliberalism broadly, We have pushed everything into the realm of the individual and the private and yourself. Like, I hate the word empowerment. Can't even tell you how much I hate the word empowerment. Women don't need any more empowerment. They just need power. Like, can we just please stop, right? That's just not, I mean, how many women do you know who are powerful, knowledgeable, competent, and ambitious that are still banging their head against a wall? right? Because they keep hitting the wall. So I think it's the same with this change. We really need to shape institutions. We need to not fade into the background in terms of how our schools teach. We need to understand why sex segregation in the labor force models behavior for children. Like we know that starting at super young ages, like in second grade, girls already step back from STEM topics because they feel that those are masculinized 
and not within their reach. At the same time, boys are perceiving, and this is a huge part of what people call the boy crisis in education, they're perceiving that they shouldn't do the softer things like art or study language or dance, you know? And so that gendered role ideation is ultimately an economic one. It's ultimately how we choose our majors and go to work and pay people. And it starts really early, you know? And so I think understanding how like-minded people need to be committed to changing institutions is more important even. I'd say practicing at home, which is where it's really hard. I mean, you started this off with a, a conversation we haven't even gotten to, which I would categorize as white women's anger and what that is, right? That's a whole other dynamic, but whatever is happening at home then bleeds on through all of these institutions, right? And so if you're not able to deal with intimate inequality, how are you gonna do it at work? How are you going to do it at school? I think it's so important to talk about the private sphere and the home for a minute, because in the book, when you're talking about, you know, I'm so tired versus I'm so angry, because that was resonating for both Sarah and myself. All do it, right? Yeah. I think every woman, you know, understands how tired we are. And, and the thing that we grapple with, and Sarah and I have talked about this, I don't know how many of our multi, you know, page text conversations are about this, you know, what do we do to be less tired? Because we're expected, you know, to care, nurture, be subservient. At the same time, as we've discussed, you know, you were supposed to be working and providing and leading, you know, so is this in our nature, which we've been taught that it's not really in our nature, but how do we process this? So, I mean, honestly, it's the driving foundation of capitalism, right? The whole system works on the unpaid, unrecognized, invisible provision of labor by women for care in the entire fucking society, right? And we don't think of that as a wealth transfer. It's a time-based wealth transfer. We take all this time, we take our bodies, we take our well-being, our mental health, our physical stamina, and we dedicate it to fulfilling this role so we don't make other people uncomfortable, we don't challenge them, we don't threaten their masculinity, we don't rock the boat, and we provide it everywhere all the time. And so that's really hard when what you're talking about is changing the nature of patriarchal, heteropatriarchal family units and relationships within those units. Because it requires women to stop doing that work, which flies in the face of our feminine identities, right? We've been socialized to know that this is how to be a good person. If you're really angry, you're not a good woman. If you're really demanding help, you have failed. If you have your own needs and you're expecting people to recognize those needs, you must be selfish, right? And that's how it gets translated every single day, all day. I don't know very many women who are in hetero marriages, especially with children who don't go to sleep at night, ultimately always feeling inadequate, always. What did I fail to do today? Who didn't I pay attention to? What package of things did I not move around my living space? Did I feed people? Did they get enough vitamin C, right? Like the checklist that goes through women's heads I really think that if most men understood what's going on all the time, they would be mystified, really. And I know men are thinking about other things, but we know that women are providing hours more unpaid labor and that the way they take care of kids is to manage the far more stressful 
aspects of child rearing, the dangerous aspects of child rearing, and that the provision of care for the elderly is also hugely on their shoulders and also massively stressful. And COVID just put all of that in a big spotlight, right? Like that's just the truth. It's totally the truth. And yet I hear so many women say, but if I don't do it, it won't get done. And is that like a question of like, do we need to wait another generation till these new generation of awakened people come up? Or is that something that we can shift? You know, I think that's interesting, right? I think that there are lots of different metrics that we hold ourselves to. If I don't do it, it won't get done, right? We all say it. I say it. I can do it. I'm right here. I'll just do it while I'm here, right? I'm doing this thing. I'll multitask. You know, I'll cook and I'll also check the homework. And I'll also, by the way, have an earphone in my head and I can listen to the meeting on mute and it's all going on around me at all times. And we just keep doing that. But I think the question is, what if you didn't do it? Who would do it? Would anybody do it? Does it matter? Right? Can you tolerate mess? Probably more than you think. Do you care? Like personally, I just came to the conclusion that certain things were never going to happen in my house. And I was fine with that. I'm like, I don't really care. Like I am not the neat person in my house. And so pretending to be the neat person in my house failed anyway, right? But I think that the standards we hold ourselves to, we really need to ask, are those our standards or are those standards imposed on me by virtue of being feminine? I mean, I have a, the honest confession. A few years ago, you know, I admitted to my husband, finally, I was just like, and he travels a lot for work. And I was like, I hate cooking for me and the kids when you were away. Like, I hate it. It is not satisfying. It is time consuming. It feels unpleasant. And as soon as I said it, I like literally hid behind my hands and was like, do you think I'm, am I okay? Like, do you still love me? Am I still providing, right? I had all of those feelings. Right. I don't want to say to his credit, but kind of to his credit, he was like, yeah, no problem. I love cooking. I'll cook when I'm home. And then why don't you go get the food delivery? Like he, it didn't even phase him, but I had been wearing this burden. Yeah, it's in our heads though. It really is. Yeah, it was a really real concern. But here's the more honest question. Are stay-at-home mothers, which is what I was for quite a number of years, perpetuating sexism? See, this is where I think it's super important to talk about intersectionality, right? Because there is the aspect of class and income, the ability to be a stay-at-home mother, right? You can't just talk about whether it's perpetuating sexism because it has all of these other implications and in fact is very, very much part of the way uh, power and leadership works, right? So a grossly disproportionate percentage of men in uh, legislatures and in Congress and in C-suite and management have stay-at-home wives. And that comes back again to what we value, right? Those women, the stay-at-home moms, have an asset and that is time. And that asset is an asset to their husband's professional lives and to the family unit's economic ambitions, right? Because in order for that man to work the way he works as an idealized male worker who is providing and who is traveling or who is not the default parent, he has to have that woman providing all of that default parenting labor and care work and domestic work. And yet we don't think of that as a form of wealth or as an asset or as a, an economic transfer that is class related. You have to be in a certain category, essentially, to survive with that model in America today. 
So I would say that it's not so much sexist as heteropatriarchal because it supports a particular type of image of a worker and leader and also a particular ideal masculine providing and protecting, right? Like male identity, and this is, I think, a problem that we're facing right now with the macho fascism of Trump's administration and his supporters. So much of male identity is constructed out of providing and protecting, But providing and protecting in that traditional model requires women to be vulnerable and dependent. If you have to provide for someone, they are not economically secure. If you have to protect someone, they are not physically secure, right? And so why are we still constructing masculinity around the notion of women's vulnerability? So when women stand up and they're like, no, fuck that, I want to make my own money and I don't want people sexually harassing me and I want to walk down the street safely, and I'm going to leave you if you ever dare raise your hand in our home to me, all of a sudden, that's like, wait, who am I providing for? And who am I protecting? Who am I? What kind of man am I if I'm not even needed to do that? And that's complicated, right? I mean, that's a really complicated thing because it comes down to people's identities and the nature of their love or the nature of their relationships. And then it becomes manifest politically in a gross and toxic way that is hugely racist and xenophobic and misogynistic, which is what we just spent the last four years in the middle of. That's interesting because I think on one hand, if people choose it because they have that socioeconomic class or because it works for them, or in some of our friends' cases, actually, we have the woman working and the man provides that, what we call time affluence. Then that's individual cases that make sense, but I see the systemic implications of thinking that this is some ideal to aspire to, some sign that says, I made it, we've got the power and the money to do this. It's very different. And also because the taxation system and the labor market and economic incentives are all calibrated to support that model of social organization, it makes rational sense. It makes the most financial sense, right? It's like, well, you know, in fact, if we work this way in this very traditional mode that's complementarian and that we're all supposed to pretend is two equal halves, which it's bullshit, that's never the case, right? It's never the case, no matter how good your relationship is, it is never the case that those people are equal. That's all reinforced by the reward systems that our institutions have. And so as long as our institutions remain rooted in that model of patriarchal leadership and economic system will continue to reproduce this at home because it's what makes sense. And I think we've been conditioned to believe based on my experiences doing that and the looks you sort of get sometimes of like, that's all you do kind of thing. There's also an inherent judgment, interpersonal judgment that comes with this territory too. Very disdainful, like very dismissive. And that again comes back to the devaluing of care and that domestic sphere. I mean, this is so interesting because in law, I've always worked with the men who had the stay-at-home wives. And so it was a continual battle and is to this day sometimes, especially in COVID, where it's, you know, there is a lack of understanding as to why I can't, you know, still in 2021, do a call at, you know, 5.30 p.m. or why I just can't spend two hours on the phone because I have, you know, virtual school going on in the next room. But when you're explaining this, it it makes so much sense as to why we have not changed these systems, like, or why, you know, these systems have worked for a certain, you know, in particular white men, so who have had that power to sort of keep that system and women, as opposed to like continuing to push against a system, which is continually so difficult. A lot of the 
fellow attorneys I know left before. That's right. And they don't make partner. And, you know, we're still talking about the affluent in society. I mean, the United States, if you're a single woman in the United States, and particularly if you're a single black woman, so you're not participating in that heteropatriarchal economic reinforcing system, right? You're outside of it. And in fact, society sees you as conservatives often say, you know, as looking for free things, like they're not getting free things institutionally just by default of entitlement. But you're 13 times more likely to be impoverished than in any other dominant nation. 13 times more in our country. You know, a single woman trying to raise a family, which is millions and millions of women, are so many live below the poverty level, are doing sort of frontline, very dangerous because of COVID work as the sole wage earners for their families. And they are left out of that economic equation for that reason. You know, that's when you really start thinking about like Patricia Hill Collins talking about her matrix of domination. That's another way of looking at intersectionality and its impacts on wages and wealth and social standing and health, like health and well-being, right? It's all enmeshed together. So I'm glad that we're talking about this too, because I want to talk about intersectionality now and how we started this podcast, you know, this episode, because this is what, like, I think I took photos actually of these pages, your book on my Kindle, because I was like, this is so, so (laughs) important because, you know, you you were talking about, and you, you talked a little bit about the stereotypes against black girls, right? And, you know, starting, I think you say in the book, Before accusations of angry Black women are used to stereotype, silence, and police women, they're used to penalize girls. Starting in early childhood, adults see Black girls as less innocent or less in need of nurturing or protection. Starting in kindergarten, Black girls are significantly more likely to be disciplined, suspended, or expelled at between, depending on where they live, five to seven times the rate of their peers. You know, we've seen this time and again. We've heard it in the stories. We've discussed it in education. And we've seen this angry Black woman, you know, the adult angry Black woman trope in discussions around Serena Williams or, you know, with Kamala Harris. I think we've seen that come out again around any Black woman who expresses anger. So how do you think, you know, especially now we have, you know, a Madam Vice President Kamala Harris. How do you think, you know, we might hear this being discussed now you know, on the national stage? And how should we be addressing this? How should we be thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, you know, it's interesting, these stereotypes, they all have their flavors, right? I mean, I wrote about this sort of conception of an angry black girl, and then an angry black woman, and what happens to punish that assertiveness or expression, or just claim on the right to be and to speak. But You know, if you're of Asian descent and you might be assertive or angry, people really expect you to be sad or to cry or to be passive. If you're white, you're literally just crazy. Like most of the depictions of women who are white and angry, they are called crazy women. You know, they're depicted like they're unhinged. If you're kind of dusky or ethnically ambiguous like me or Arab or Hispanic, you're really spicy and hot and like compared to consumable foods, right? Like that's really what happens. And so all of those are ways of dismissing what the woman's saying, right? They're literally ways of silencing her, minimizing her presence or her speech. And um, I think we're at a really interesting time. And we know from media studies years and years now that these stereotypes uh, remain 
prevalent. They remain very common in media. The words that are used to describe Vice President Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi. I mean, women leaders are routinely cast as witches, as you know, people who have abnormal powers, extraordinary powers, not natural powers, and that they are, you know, all of it, the hormones, the temperament, the ironies of saying this about women in the wake of Trump's presidency will never be lost. Like, it's a gift, actually, because the next time anybody says, oh, she's too emotional. Oh, does she have her period? Oh, she's just an angry black woman. Literally, all you should do is flash them a picture of Trump. Just walk away. Like, here's my picture of Trump. I'm done now. Because I have never seen a more irrational, kind of odd, canny, savantish use of media, but still the most petulant. I don't like comparing him to a child because it's an insult to children, but really and truly... I don't know how media will sustain it, but they will. It will happen. And we see it on the right all the time. You know, there was a hashtag in the buildup to the election. There were two. One was represent her. The other was we have her back. And basically we use those hashtags along with a broad coalition of media justice activists to point out when that language was being used. And so all we can do is hold media accountable. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. I was just going to ask that. How do we hold media accountable? Because obviously you're in equal representation. Like, it is very important to hold accountable those who create the sources of information that we receive that shape these stereotypes that you're just talking about. Very, very important. You know, all I can think of as a consumer is, you know, I just won't watch it. But what can we do above and beyond that? I'm not going to give them my advertising dollars, my eyeball time. Like, is there other stuff we can do? I mean, I think there's several things. One is to the degree that we can as adults, we should continuously be educating ourselves about media literacy because we're so immersed in media, right? The second thing, and I think this is really important for people who have any influence over children. So not just parents, but teachers, coaches, relatives, anybody who's around kids, we have to arm them with critical media skills too. We have to be very open with them about, you know, when you see a stereotype, talk about the stereotype. You know, when you see the imprecise use of language, talk about that. Give them the skills to understand what they're seeing and understand what the possible harms of what they're seeing are. Because in fact, a lot of people treat kids like they're just sitting there absorbing media. But all of our kids are producing media. That's why we have a Youth Media Academy at the Representation Project. It's because it's not a one-way street. The way media works today is different than it worked even 10 years ago. You know, kids are consuming, but they're also producing. And so by giving them the information they need and the structure and framework, just in everyday conversation, you're not going to sit down and say, let's talk about stereotypes today for the next hour, kids. This is not the way it works, you know, but you're having breakfast and you whip out a cereal box and there's a woman selling cereal and she's wearing a G-string. You can say, gee, well, let's talk about the G-string on the lady with the cereal box, you know, and have that conversation. And then they go off to school and they're like, hey, guess what I talked to mom and dad about this morning at breakfast. And then the teacher calls you and you're like, oh yes, <laughs> would you like to talk about that in class? <laughs> but honestly, like that's what it takes. It really does require a full court press. It's not gonna make you popular. But that's okay. We're not in it to be our kids' friends right now anyway. We're in it to make good adults. But I agree with like, you know, and that's, I do that with my kids. I think a lot of us do that with our kids. And I guess that's why I'm like, how else do we hold 
people accountable because from all the rumors you hear, well, Trump is going to make his own new media brand. And we have this proliferation of polarizing TV stations because we have so many like stations that are available compared to like Mm -hmm. back when we were growing up and there was like the 13 switch manual dial. Yeah. There's no comparison, you know? So, I mean, I think you're right. We do have the power. I mean, we do live in a system in which money really matters and we have the power, which we saw used very effectively, to withhold advertising dollars and hold companies accountable. And that's true of all kinds of media. In 2013, Jacqueline Friedman, who was executive director of an organization called Women Action in the Media, and Laura Bates, who started something called Everyday Sexism and I, launched a global campaign demanding that Facebook remove graphic violence against women on its platform that had been categorized as humor. So depictions of rape jokes, domestic violence imagery, hateful language, racist, misogynistic imagery. And that worked in the moment and affected some meaningful change there, I would argue, based on the consequences, because we bypassed them and went straight to advertisers. You know, we said, American Express, do you really want your ad sitting next to this page of, you know, women that men have said they want to rape? Probably not, you know, but you have to use the power of the pocketbook. It's one of the powers that we have. And women, frankly, make 80% of purchasing decisions still. So being able to do that and have a sense of who you want to reward is probably pretty important. So this is going to circle back to something we were talking about before, but there's another sentence that you wrote in your book that I want to talk about because I think it relates to so many things, but I'll tell you the sentence and then we can talk about it because it really relates to how femininity and what we've been talking about, that sort of, you know, feeling of protection and providing for has been really used as a weapon that alienates women of color. And the sentence that you wrote is the need to protect white women portrayed as frail, innocent and defenseless is a centuries old justification for terroristic racist violence. And, you know, in off the heels of the Capitol riots, you know, and this can't be more timely, but it's been seen in news and media and so many sources. It was birth of a nation. This was Jim Crow, Emmett Till. This was 2016, right? The presidential election. So how damaging is this? You know, because we've had this for this stereotype and this belief for so long. And why have white women bought into this? I mean, because in some ways I can see that the stereotypes and what we've been taught have brought, you know, white women here. But at the same time, it seems to also work against you. So I think there are a couple of things. One is that people cognition works to protect people's identity and status, right? So there's something called identity protective cognition, and it affects the way we perceive the world and absorb information and consider facts and judge risk. And so for that cognition significantly acts to protect status. So if you get information or face a challenge that threatens your status, you will downplay that information and ignore the change that is required, right? So think about this mechanism in 2016. Here was a a president who had, among other things, just been revealed as being a pussy-grabbing boaster. That's what he did, right? That put on public display what sometimes people call locker room talk. So he externalized a kind of sexism that is tolerated broadly by the society 
and especially in more traditional parts of society. There's a division, what you say in the locker room stays in the locker room. But that highlighted women's inequality, particularly, I would argue, in conservative cultures and communities where men act that way all the time and women look away. If one form of status and inequality is being made very evident to you, so your gender inequality is really being, you know, you're being hit over the head with the fact that you can be denigrated so easily this way by men in your life, then what do you do? You leverage other forms of status, in this case, whiteness. You can claim white superior status in the society without parting ways with your spouse, for example, because you can bond over whiteness and put aside the gender disparities and inequalities. And I would say that's a significant factor in what we're seeing. The second thing though is, if you are genuinely love the men in your life and your sons maybe, and your father, and their identity is built around uh, traditional masculine ideals, chances are fairly good that you yourself are going to express traditional feminine ideals. And those ideals of femininity as fragile, as needing protection, as vulnerable, are really built to complement the idea of a strong man who's going to protect you. And he's going to protect you with his guns or with his ability to make a living or, you know, whatever the form of protection is. And that's the second pillar in this, you know, and if you are actually actively constructing people's identities around these really harmful ideas about who is strong and who is weak and who should have public power and who should have private power, then you end up with these really complicated scenarios that seem irrational. Like, frankly, anybody on the left who saw Trump and heard Trump and listened to the more than six dozen women who have described him either assaulting or harassing or raping them, you think, how can any woman look aside? Like, what is that? How can they just ignore that information. So the idea that this is rational, we should toss it out the window because it's really not that, you know? And so there's all of this identity protection, I think, that goes into protecting oneself as an individual, one's family, one's relationships, one's economic and physical security. I mean, I don't know how many people that I spoke to reporting on the election in 2016 that said they were going door to door to get out the vote. And a man would come to the door with a gun and he would say, we're never going to vote for Hillary Clinton and slam the door. And then 10 minutes later, a woman comes running down the block and says, I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. I just didn't want any trouble in my house. Right. And so I think it's really complicated. There is, yes, there's white supremacy and women have always been on the front lines of white supremacist movements in the United States. There's no doubt about that. But don't confuse that with women's liberation or women's equality. Those are not related things at all. So many good things to think about there, because I think, you know, the way I had been thinking about it and trying to rationalize it and my lawyer mind like really wants to rationalize stuff very hard. But then and, you know, in talking to people and in talking to people between 2016 and 2020 and, you know, people felt or there was some viewpoints that white women and how they were voting were changing. And, you know, they had seen this change and what Trump stood for and how that worked against their interests. But then we also have in 2020, you know, more than 70 million people voted for Trump and the number of white women who voted for Trump was not zero. So what you're saying makes complete sense. And 
But I think it's so hard to understand in so many ways if you didn't grow up in that, right? Well, it's complicated, right? And also the thing we haven't talked about either is, I think, a particular type of religiosity, you know? And because we don't have social safety nets, religious support is super important to women because, in fact, they turn to religious communities very often to help them with care, to help them manage their lives. And all of our main religions are patriarchal. All of them rely on complementary roles for men and women. All of them give men public power and authority to speak and relegate women primarily to the private sphere. And that's super, you know, religion is profuse in America. Ironically, it's our secularism that enabled the proliferation of so many religions and religiosity. But we can't discount that. Like, it's really important to the way people see themselves and their communities and their government. And it's different, I would argue, for white religious communities and black religious communities, right? We have to make that distinction. And they serve different roles and they very broadly speaking have often contrary, you know, they're contrary to each other because of the history of white supremacy and slavery and because of the role that those institutions have played in either fighting them or supporting them. So I don't want to lump all religions in the same bucket. It is notable though, that Trump was first supported by white evangelicals and Catholics. And those are both highly authoritarian faiths, very hierarchical, rule-bound, punishing, patriarchal. You know, that fits in line with nascent authoritarian political world. I mean, I don't want to say, oh, we're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a sliver of hope. Okay. (laughs) My sliver of hope And I'll admit right up front, it's not like I've developed this intellectually in any great depth, but I really do believe this to be the case. I think that Obamacare will have intergenerational effect. We won't see the effects, in fact, for another generation, because it has shifted the way people think about care and the provision of care and the responsibilities that we have towards each other as a society. And, you know, right now, the health of bodies and the care of people, even though men are doing it, women are still doing most of that work and most of the heavy lifting, either at home or in a professional capacity. They're taking care of bodies and they are left alone to do it, right? When we don't have an insurance system that's not tied to employment, and when we have an an insurance system that's tied to employment, we pretty much are leaving women out of the equation insofar as they can depend on any care or support themselves. And I think that it will take a generation for that to free women from their dependence on non-governmental social safety nets like religion. That's interesting because I'm married to a Canadian man and I've always talked to me, Sasha, about this different psyche that I think has done us wrong because we don't have those fundamental safety nets, especially when it comes to healthcare. I think that really eroded the sense of community and it allowed this narrative that, oh, we're individual and we can do it all on our own when in fact that is just blatantly false. And so that's interesting. I didn't see that as a trickle down effect in terms of freeing more women and recognizing the need for care, but that's true. Maybe by the time the kids grow up, as long as we don't have any people continuing to try to dismantle it, people will see it. Well, I mean, I think a lot about women's dependence on religious institutions as a substitute for 
a social safety net that's not tied to faith, right? Our safety nets are faith-based safety nets. And if you're not in a faith-based community, you're screwed. That's true. Because it's not, I mean, we talk about, I mean, then the next level of safety net is a homeless shelter. Like there's no interim bucket. No, there's there's no interim bucket, you know? And I mean, on any given day, 65,000 calls are made to domestic shelters because women have nowhere to go if they leave abusive, 65,000 calls in the United States. They have nowhere to go, you know, because so much of intimate partner abuse, which, you know, 25% of women in America experience is financial dependence and abuse, right? Control of money means women can't leave. They can't feed the kids. They can't get clothes. They can't even dress, get clothes to go get a job interview. They don't have childcare if they want to go to work, you know? And so they rely on their communities, which are often faith-based to survive. I mean, even hearing that gets me angry and upset on everybody's behalf. So what are like maybe the top couple of tips you have on how we as women can get better at processing and expressing our anger? So I tried to outline these at the end of the book. One, I think, really is acknowledging that you're human and you will have anger because all human beings have anger. The second is being able to say, I'm angry, which means recognizing the ways in which you might divert your anger by saying I'm sad or by getting sick or by saying I'm stressed all the time. I mean, I write a lot about diversion of anger in that way because we're all socialized to divert. We're also socialized to be silent and to ruminate, which is really unhealthy, right? We'll think about it, we'll mull it over. And that's really not healthy for us. So making, you know, giving it a name, acknowledging it, and then making meaning from it. Why am I angry? What is this anger? It's information. I'm trying to tell myself something and I'm trying to use my ability to communicate with others to make that thing change. I think it's important to really acknowledge how hard that is and to think about why. If you are in a relationship, and by that I mean a personal relationship, a professional relationship, and you can't say, I have a problem. This is my problem. Can you help me? Is there reciprocity in our relationship? Why can't you say it, right? So one of the more interesting studies I found was about, again, and I think this is really important, women in relationships with men who, when they were angry, they realized that they couldn't express their anger as anger. So they default to sadness or fear, which either of those will often result in tears. Men in those relationships agree and say that if a woman appears angry or makes an angry demand, they think of her as selfish and as a bad partner right? And so that's hard work. It's hard work that parents have to do to explain to boys why girls and women have the right to express need and to demand reciprocity and to expect mutual care for their well-being. That's really important, right? And it also, for the socialization of girls, I think it's very important to make it clear that they do have that right, that they have the right to expect mutuality and that there is a certain danger and learned helplessness and fragility. And not just that, but that helplessness and fragility will be weaponized in the service of racism and xenophobia and a lot of other bad things. And those are lessons for adults, right? Like we're all still learning those lessons. There's never, I don't think, a time when we're not learning those lessons. I appreciate that so much. I mean, it's just like all of this, you know, if we treat our lifetime as the ability to learn and change and develop as we go along these lines, along the lines of 
anti-racism. I mean, there's so many things that we can continue to do and grow and improve upon, especially if it means that we can help ourselves and help others along the way. I agree. And honestly, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I'm serious when I say people need to be able to practice. It's hard. You have to practice at home. You have to say, hey, you know what? We need to have this conversation and you can't get mad at me for saying the thing I'm about to say. You have to listen to what I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I'm not going to have my husband listen to this podcast episode. So he's like not prepared for this, but I will practice. Having mine listen, I was like, that's actually what I'm going to walk out of here after we finish recording and tell him like, this is, (laughs) you need to listen. (laughs) It's hard because especially now everybody's so exhausted and so stressed. And the last thing anybody wants to do is like be disruptive, you know, but look at what's happened. Women have lost jobs at four times the rate men have all 140,000 jobs lost in December were lost by women. I mean, this is not sustainable. We have been set back years, years in terms of our ability to close racialized wealth and wage gaps, years. We know this from other pandemics. We know this, you know, other epidemics. It wasn't inevitable and it was predictable, in fact. I mean, I think we could talk all day. I mean, I definitely could. But is there anything that we didn't ask that we left out that we should be sharing that because you've got so much amazing wisdom on this that we want to give everything that we can? I mean, honestly, I think one thing that's important, we can't go into it in detail, but I think it's important to think about masculinity and femininity and the role that whiteness plays in those, right? Because it plays such a big role in the United States, but also benevolent sexism versus hostile sexism, right? You know, I think people think that sexism has to be a matter of intent and that somebody has to be a sexist to do something that's harmful. But in fact, Most of the time, it's not intentional, it's traditional, right? Like when we talk about ladies and gentlemen, what we've done is established a category of women that are worthy of respect because they're towing the line and they're behaving a certain way, and a category of women that get what they deserve because they're bad girls, right? The minute you say young lady, like act like a lady, you've just established a hierarchy among girls. And in fact, I would argue that in many parts of the country, black and brown girls cannot ever be ladies because they're not white, right? Like that's the way the system works. And so I always say, you know, you can teach children how to be good people who respect the dignity of other people and treat them with empathy without calling them ladies and gentlemen at all. You know, why do we even default to that kind of language? Why don't we just talk about what it means to be kind and to be thoughtful, you know? And so I just wouldn't underestimate how profoundly we're all shaped and affected by these ideas. And within our homes, which tend to be homogenous in terms of race and ethnicity, it tends to be gender that's the first point of division between siblings, for example, right? And that then has an efflorescence in society. It's interesting. And I grew up with brothers, but I have two girls, so I haven't parented that dynamic myself. Very different. Me too. I have three girls and no, and I grew up with brothers too. Yeah. It's different to look back and see what I could have done differently, but now I have, I don't have that same opportunity, but it also spoke to me when you just mentioned that about the vernacular we use. What does it take to, you know, start a new word in the lexicon, for example, that's like a second person plural. Cause right now it's, Hey guys, or Hey people, 
Oh, that's so hard. I do it all the time. Right. What do we, I'm like, do I begin a conversation with a group of people saying, hello, thoughtful people? I mean, it sounds so contrived. It's so contrived. And I can't say y'all for a whole variety of reasons. Like the word will never come out of my mouth. It just won't happen. My brain is like, uh-uh, not happening. So in my brain, I'm going, y'all guys, y'all guys, no, no, no. And so I have no answer for that. Same. Oh. Yeah. We need to invent one, folks. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 